We are in the middle, coming to the end of an Advent series. Now, I know Advent is obviously continues a little bit longer. We do believe all the way to Christmas Day. Uh, This is the final Sunday we have together. So it's the third of three little Advent uh, sermons. And what we've been doing as a means to get into Scripture is been using one of the most, some some of the most well-known, much-loved carols. And we looked at a Christmas carol each time, looked at a particular scriptural truth that it encapsulates and then unpack that together. And that's what we'll do again this morning. And we're using the carol, O Holy Night, uh, that we sang at the end of the carol service on uh, on. Sunday. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful carol. And uh, just timing what it is, we're not, we're not going to sing it as we've been doing at the beginning of each sermon so far, but we will sing it at the end. Um, okay, oh, Holy Night, for those of you interested, was written by a wine cellar, a guy called Placido Capo de Roquemoyer. That's horrendous French pronunciation, forgive me. In 1847, uh, and he was just asked by his parish priest to write a poem at Christmas. And so he did, and that's all it was. Uh, and then he found a friend that put it to music, and then it was translated, and it's the famous carol that we now sing now. That is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of music, and we'll sing it together at the end. And uh, if I could, Peter, we'll have the first slide. I just want to draw your attention just to one particular line uh, in the carol, and particularly one phrase. This is one of the, the, um, the, the lyrics. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. And I also want to hone on that one particular phrase, his gospel is peace. His gospel is peace. In other words, the writer is saying, the good news about Jesus Christ, the gospel, can be summed up with the one word, peace. That's the claim, at least he's making in his carol. And in, in terms of peace, when it comes to peace, all of us, I think, are in different contexts, not least this Christmas, are, have got some kind of peace probably on our Christmas wish list. And of course, peace, I'm preparing for this, such a huge kind of topic, but, but you know, just thinking about nationally at the moment. There's a real sense, isn't there, of of frustration, of nervousness, of anger, at the way things perhaps are panning out or are not panning out. What kind of Brexit deal are we going to get or not get? Who's going to be prime minister and so on and so forth? How can we bring peace to the divisions in our country that seem to be growing in some respects? Thinking about peace in a different way, just like more individually, more more and more people are coming forward and in one way or the other are saying, "I, I don't have peace of mind. Mental health challenges are only going one way, aren't they? They're on the increase, not least in young people saying, I I just don't know what it is to have a a peace of mind. And of course, at Christmas specifically, we would would love peace at Christmas, peace in our church, peace in our families, peace in our finances. One person said to me last year they would love peace with their mother-in-law. In fact, even somebody else even joked they'd specifically arranged for their mother-in-law to travel up for Christmas on Southern Rail. And to his horror, she still arrived on time. <laughs> so peace is on all our minds in some respects. Notice my wife's not here. I chose my moments for that. For that, I have a lovely mother-in-law. But the big idea this morning, the big idea this morning is simply this, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has a unique and extraordinary power to meet our longing for peace. I want to unpack that in in just three steps before we come together and sing this wonderful carol. I want to to ask, is the gospel of peace scriptural? Just a drill from the carol into the Bible. Then, what does this peace accomplish? What does it actually do? And thirdly, how can I, how can you experience this peace this Christmas, this year, today? That's where we want to get to at the end. 
So, number one, is the gospel of peace scriptural? Or is it just a nice line and a lyric that we plucked out? Well, the good news is yes. And there are so many scriptures which testify that the writer of his carol got it right when he said the gospel is peace. Let me just give you three. So take yourself back 700 years before the birth of Christ into the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of God's kind of messengers, mouthpieces. And Isaiah speaks words that we know famously perhaps at Christmas. And Isaiah predicts, or God tells Isaiah what to say, to predict that one day the fractured peace between mankind, and most of all between mankind and God, will come to an end. And these are wonderful words, aren't they, that often get uh, read out at this time of year. For to us a child is born, Isaiah 9 says. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then you fast forward to about 3 or 4 BC, and we see the fulfillment of this promise right at the heart of the Christmas story of the season of Advent. That's in fact. Anna unbeknowingly read this out, I think, at the beginning of the service in Luke chapter 2. The angels appear to the shepherds, and they tell the shepherds that this day to you uh, is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then they say, as Anna said at the beginning of the service, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And fast forward again to about 60 A.D., and the church is launched into action uh, in the Middle East, the Mediterranean. And the Apostle Paul, who founded so many of those churches, is writing to one of them. A church not dissimilar to ours, I'm sure, in Colossae, in Turkey. And in chapter 3 of his letter to this church in Colossae, Turkey, in 60 AD, he's exhorting them to really care and love for one another. In fact, he's exhorting them to remain unified to grow in the fruits of the Holy Spirit, like patience. He wants them to bear with one another when things are hard, because they sometimes are hard in church life. And he, he wants them to forgive one another when they hurt each other, as we do. He wants them to radically love one another. And he brings all that to, to, to a kind of culmination in verse 15 of chapter 3, and he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And I hope you will receive many things in these next 20 minutes or so. But if you only receive one thing, can it be that verse? would love you to commit to memory that verse. It's just profound. And I hope I'll be able to touch some of that in the coming moments. And we'll, we'll conclude with it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So. You could say, just with those three verses, and there are many, many more, you could say you got the promise of peace in Isaiah, the arrival of peace at Christmas, and then the offer of the personal experience of peace. It's promised, it arrives, and then we're offered the opportunity to personally experience it. So it's scriptural. I hope we all agreed on that. Secondly, what does it actually accomplish because peace is so general, isn't it? It could be defined in so many ways. What does the, the peace of Christ, the prince's peace, what does it actually do? Three things, just for a change. The peace ends hostility with the prince. The peace provides entrance into the family of the prince. And the peace provides a promise from the prince that anchors us. So it ends hostility with the prince. You see, in Isaiah 9, the promise of the Prince of Peace, if there's a promise of peace, if there's the need for peace, then logically there must be a lack of peace, right? 
You don't need peace in an enduring age of peace if something else other than peace is not existing. So the opposite of peace must be at play to some degree. And we could call the opposite of peace hostility. You notice what the angels say to the shepherds. They don't say peace to all men, as perhaps we like to popularly quote. They say peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, there is a grave need for people to be at peace with God. It's not a given. There's a grave need for it. That's kind of the hard news this morning. You know, Damn, it's Christmas, and it's peace, and it's love. What about, what is this about hard news of hostility between man and God? Well, the fact is, peace with God does not come naturally to us. We don't naturally uh, begin to grow in wanting to obey God, to worship God, to, to live for Him. In of ourselves, I know for myself, certainly outside the family of God, our natural disposition is to disobey God. Our natural disposition is to worship things other than God and make those things like a God. Our natural disposition is to live for ourselves, not for him. I know I did, outside of Christianity. That's one of the big points of the Bible, the story of the Bible that's made over and over again. The Bible repeatedly makes it clear that as much as people, possibly friends and family of ours, are capable of extraordinary goodness and generosity and creativity and skill because we're all made in the image of God. As much as that's true, we're also all capable of genuine and real evil and darkness. And by not living for God, he who has created us, by not living for the creator who's created us to live for him, by rejecting him, by rejecting him we set ourselves up in opposition to him. The Bible's clear about that. We're not just distant from him. We're not just uh, in, in a position of neutrality with him. Our rebellion, our rejection of him sets us up in hostility between us and God. Hard news. Romans 5 verse 10 actually describes us outside of the family of God as enemies of God. Hostility. Ephesians 2 verse 2 describes us as children of wrath. People sitting under the hostility, the righteous, holy hostility of God. It's hard news this morning. If the Christian faith is new to you, if you're looking into it, it's good news. But it's particularly good news because there's bad news. But look at what else, or consider what else. I haven't put all the verses on the, on the screen today, forgive me. But look at what else, or consider what else um, Romans 5 and Ephesians 2 tells us. Romans 5, chapter 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 16, it gets better, says he, speaking about Jesus, has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, great words these, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And that's partly about the, the work of Jesus Christ unites people together. And Paul is saying, you might be a Jew, you might be a Gentile, but the work of Jesus Christ has killed the hostility between you. So you're united together in the body of Christ. And he's also saying the work of Jesus has killed the hostility between you and God. I love Hebrews 12 verse 3. It says, consider him. That means meditate on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Wonder about Jesus. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself. 
So what is the gospel of peace, first of all? It's amazing news. It's the news that the Prince of Peace didn't just observe us and condemn us in our hostility towards God, but he actually came and endured the hostility himself. That's the kind of Jesus that we have, this little baby grew up to be. All of our sinful, rebellious hostility towards God was flung upon Jesus. Consider him who endured such hostility. And... All of God's righteous, holy, necessary, perfect, white-hot hostility towards sin and sinners was poured upon Jesus. Consider him who endured such hostility. Hostility that he willingly and lovingly took. It's really important that you know Jesus was not a victim in this. He joyfully went ahead. He, he joyfully answered the Father's call and command, as it were, and joyfully went ahead to do this thing. Hostility killed Jesus. But actually the good news of the gospel of peace is that the prince killed the hostility. So that we could have peace with God now and forever. And so that we can have peace with each other. I mean, to tell you a story that I hope will help us to unpack this a bit more. Uh, it's a story about a village called uh, Pichilin in Colombia. Uh, some of you will know Miller and Jenny, a lovely Colombian family. I checked the pronunciation with him, and I'm quite glad he's not here, because I think it would be a terrible, a terrible version. But Pichilin in Colombia. Any Spanish speakers? Steph, is that all right? Thank you. Um, Pichilin in Colombia. For years, Pichilin in Colombia was plagued by various paramilitary revolutionary forces, not least uh, FARC. You may have heard of them, F-A-R-C, and other militant groups for years and years. And one day in 1996, anti-FARC uh, paramilitaries came to Pichilin uh, and in an act of vengeance, rounded up 12 men and shot them dead. And as a result, the entire community of Pichilin fled, as you would leaving the community uh, just like a ghost town. Until two years ago, in 2016, the Colombian government managed finally to secure some kind of peace deal, some kind of ceasefire with uh, the paramilitary groups. And as a result, people started to return bit by bit to Pichilin, including a group who called themselves Planting Peace. And one of the things they did was to plant flowers to try and begin to... uh, symbolize the, the um, growth and healing of, this, of the village. And bit by bit, they saw and have seen over the last two years, this village has been transformed. There was an article in the Washington Post just, just this week, and it said this. Now, Pichelin, the health center has reopened. The village festival that was canceled for years out of respect for the dead is back. The population is up to 110 families, or about 500 people, more or less what it was before the mass exodus. Children ride bicycles up and down the streets. The Sunday Soccer League is active again. The kiosk shop has reopened. People talk and take time to do so. The gardens are flourishing again. A particularly beautiful space contains an awe-inspiring pink bougainvillea against the turquoise backdrop of a freshly renovated house with children playing outside. You see, peace is not simply an ending of hostility. You need that. You absolutely need that. It's the first step. Without the Colombian government securing some kind of peace deal to end this paramilitary hostility, then Pichelin would have remained this desolate, deserted ghost town. But peace is more, isn't it, than a cessation of hostility. 
It's more than a truce. Peace ultimately is the context in which people can flourish. Children ride bikes, flowers are planted, conversations take place, businesses boom. Peace is not just the ending of hostility, it's the context in which people can flourish. And this group of people clearly understood that. They wanted to not just kind of maintain a ceasefire, they wanted peace and people to flourish, one in which creativity and beauty and generosity and safety could come to the fore and families could thrive. And so it is with the gospel of peace, the gospel, the good news of the peace of Christ. Jesus doesn't only break down the wall of hostility between us and God, he creates the conditions by which we can flourish. It's a deeper peace than simply the cessation of hostility. So secondly, this is a peace that causes us to enter into the family of the prince. Hostility with the prince is ended, broken down, finished. And secondly, it's a peace in which we enter into his very family. I'm jumping around various scriptures, so do, um, do stay with me. In John chapter 14 and verse 27, just before Jesus goes to endure incredible hostility, pretty much the night before his death, when I'd be thinking about anybody else other than myself, he speaks with disciples He knows he's speaking to us down the tunnel of history who would seek to follow him afterwards. And in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What does he mean by that? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Because the world does give amazing peace in different ways, doesn't it? Wonderful types of peace, whether it's people like this, people like planting peace, or other such people who would work uh, wonderfully, people sacrificing their lives to bring conflict and war to an end and achieve peace in that sense. That's why this year we celebrated and remember the 100th anniversary of the armistice in 1918. The world can offer the peace of mind that comes from a great pension plan or or life insurance or knowing how to look after our health. The peace that comes from a good holiday. The peace that comes from from getting a good degree, as some of you are aiming to do, or securing a a stable job or having well-adjusted kids. All of those things, of course, bring peace into the mix. But what do all those things have in common? What all those things have in common is this. None of them are 100% guaranteed. None of them can stand absolutely secure that they're never, ever going to fail you. That they'll always be able to guarantee peace. Now think about it. Ceasefires, ends of war are, are not guaranteed. 1945, World War II ends. World War I was supposed to be the war that ended all wars, and World War II trumped it horrendously. But it finished, and people celebrated. Never again. And within a few months, the two allies, the United States and the Soviet Union, within a few months are creating the conditions between them in which the Cold War emerges within years. And the threat of nuclear war hangs over us for about 50 years. It's amazing peace. World War II is ended, and yet within months, a new conflict is already at play. The stock market, we know, is a fragile, fragile beast. 2008 told us that the strongest economies can crash. I'm sure we all saw pictures. Maybe even we were some of those successful people in New York and London who suddenly overnight are packing their bags. No job, no peace. We can do everything to protect our health. I'm sure we all know stories where ill health comes at a moment. We can have well-adjusted kids who are doing really well and suddenly something happens and they're no longer well-adjusted kid is doing well. 
But Jesus says, I'm offering you something altogether different, entirely different to that. Not as the world gives you peace, but I give you my peace. Now, what does that mean? What does he actually mean? I give you my peace. I think he means lots of things, but there's one clue in another verse, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. Jesus is baptized. He doesn't need to, but he humbly and willingly identifies himself with us and is baptized. And in verse 10 of Mark chapter 1, it says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. It's just a majestic verse. It's a tiny glimpse into the peace that exists between the Trinity, within the Godhead. The Spirit hovers over the Son, and the Father speaks these words of incredible affirmation. Just within that moment, you can see this extraordinary peace, love and honor and and cooperation and and affirmation. So part of what Jesus is saying, I think, when he says, I give you my peace, he says to every Christian, and a Christian is just somebody who trusts in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and the victorious resurrection of the Prince of Peace. Whether that's do that today, whether you did 50 years ago, whether you're doing well as a Christian or really badly, he says this to every single person who's done that, trusted in his death and resurrection. He says, you can have the peace that I have with the Father and the Spirit. I just begin to let your head kind of get around that concept. He's not saying, I've got this really wonderful uh, plan that means if you do the right things, you can know kind of a peace of mind and be sort of zen-like in the way you go out. He's saying, the peace that I have always had since before there was even time, Father, Son, Spirit, cooperating, honoring, mutually sending and responding, making much of each other, you can have that. That's the promise that he's making. Not a peace that is dependent on any circumstances, but one that is eternal, one that is untouched, unstained by even the slightest bit of vulnerability or stain or sin or uncertainty. Jesus says to us, I'm I'm the Prince of Peace. I don't just kill the hostility between you and the King. I invite you to the peace of being in the royal family of the King. And it's important that we understand the bad news, as it were, of the hostility that exists outside, the, the, the killing of it by Jesus Christ. But we mustn't just stay there thinking, oh, thank goodness I've been forgiven. We've got to step into the peace that Jesus is saying. It's yours. Father, speaking over the Son. If you become a Christian, you become united to Christ. What he has is yours. And so when the Father says over Jesus, that's, that's my Son with whom I'm well pleased, my beloved. If you're a Christian, he says that over you right now. You are my son, my daughter. With you I am well pleased, my beloved. And that is a peace that anchors you, that secures you. You can say amen if you agree. Amen. <laughs> Jesus says in chapter 16 of the, of, of the, of the John discourse before his death. I read you chapter 14, but chapter 16, he says, my peace I give you, and by the way, you will have trouble. He says it in the same breath almost. You will have trouble, and my peace I give you. If you become a Christian this morning, you're not signing up for trouble-free life, quite the opposite. But with those troubles, with those circumstantial buffets and storms of life, Jesus says, there is a peace that none of those things can touch. 
And he's yours today. Today. He's yours for the first time or for a fresh time. There's a uh, wonderful old film. Uh, many of you will know it, Chariots of Fire. Uh, we've got at least 20 minutes without a sporting analogy, so here we go. <laughs> Chariots of Fire, many of you will know it, 1924 Olympics, two uh, famous athletes, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. Eric Little's the one who we know about, if we're a Christian, because uh, the stance that he took. But Harold Abrahams has always fascinated me. And uh, he's the other 100-meter sprinter, kind of one of the favorites to, to win gold at the 24 Paris Olympics. True story. Uh, very impressive man in many ways. Tall, dark, handsome, 100-meter sprinter, dating a beautiful opera singer. Got it all. And in the, in the film, they, they, there's this scene before the 100-meter final. And they're kind of... Music's playing, and you're beginning to get excited about who's going to win this 100-meter final. And Abrahams is there just with his coach in the, in, the, in, the, in the changing room, just the two of them, totally on their own, and getting ready for this, this race. And Harold Abrahams says this extraordinary thing. I think it's an extraordinary thing he says to his coach. doesn't say, give me some tips. How can I win this race? He says, do you know what? In a few moments, I'm going to look down the tunnel of my track, and I'm going to have, he says, 10 seconds to justify my existence. And that might not resonate with you, but it's always resonated with, with me a bit. It's this idea, this man with it all, who's got the opportunity to be kind of king of the world for a moment. He's not looking ahead to what he can have. He's looking ahead to what he can lose. For him, to lose this race would not be to lose a gold medal and to be disappointed and gutted as all of us would be. To lose this race means he hasn't got a reason to live. He doesn't matter. He doesn't have value. He doesn't have worth. And... It's quite intense. You might think, steady on, Harold Abrahams is quite intense. But my experience has been, and I haven't been doing this as, as long as Paul has been doing this, but I've been doing it long enough to see that for many of us, or for many people certainly, we have a, something like that at play within us. We have a hundred meters, we have a, a, a track, and we look down at inver- whatever it might be, how our kids are going to do, whether we get married or not, how the church goes. And we look down at how I perform at work. And we look down it and we kind of say to ourselves, unless I succeed at this, this, this thing, it, it, I need to succeed at this thing to justify my existence. It goes that deep inside us. I wonder what that thing is for you. See, the prince doesn't just broker a fragile truce between us and the king doesn't just kill hostility. He leads us into his very family. He gives us a seat at the table, a royal inheritance, and he invites us into the embrace of the king, of the father, to know every single day those same words. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. If you let that peace rule in your heart, it means you can look down your 100-meter track, whatever it might be, and you can say, I'm going to give my best to that, and whatever happens, I've got a peace that can't change. And those are the kinds of people that have incredible poise, which I think is a good word to describe humility and confidence. Because they know, gosh, without the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the hostility between me and God would never have been ended. I am a sinner in need of grace. And the peace that I need, I cannot engender for myself. I need it as a gift of grace. It humbles you. And then it sets you on your feet and puts your shoulders back and makes you supremely confident because this is a piece that can't go anywhere. I can lose the race. I can fall flat on my face before I even started the race. I once did that. First time I ever used uh, racing blocks, 100 meters. I, first time I, never, I never used it. Down there I went to go. My foot got stuck. I just fell flat on my face before I even started. 
And you can do that in your race, whatever it is, of raising children, being married, wanting to, be ch- wanting, to, wanting to be married, working hard at work, cultivating a business, seeking to move the church forward and extend the kingdom of God. You can, you can look down that 100-meter track and say, I'm going to give everything I can to this. And if I win it and I'm successful, my ultimate peace isn't there. It's in the affirmation of the Father who speaks over me. You, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. And if I lose it, if I fall flat on my face, if I look stupid, if I, if I suffer, if something comes and cuts in on my race and suddenly ends it, I've still got a peace that cannot be shifted. Christians should be full of poise, full of deep humility. Not a, no room for a speck of arrogance in a Christian. And we should also be supremely confident Because the creator of the universe says, I affirm you, I believe in you, you're mine, I will never let you go. So what is this gospel of peace that this carol writer encapsulated? It's the good news that the Prince of Peace has broken down the wall of hostility between the king and you. And it's the good news that we then take our seat in that royal family and we know the perfect peace that comes from the affirmation and love of the father, the king. Thirdly, and I'll be brief, I think. I said that we would also receive a promise from the prince. Hostility between us and the prince is ended. We come into the family of the prince. And he also gives us a promise, lots of promises. Let me give you one. The Apostle Paul is speaking these words because he's speaking God's words in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Kind of classic bumper sticker Bible verse, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you'll have heard that. It's okay, it's okay, things can happen, aren't very good, and God can work them together for, for good. Woo-hoo. It's not a bumper sticker verse. It is a profound promise that anchors you, that can give you a supreme peace. And the, the depth of that promise is that not only has the wall of hostility been killed, and you step into the family of God and receive daily affirmation, the peace is even more because nothing can get to it. And, it, and even the worst of things can happen and do happen, and, and for some of us will happen if we follow Christ and seek first the kingdom of God. You will have trouble in this life, Jesus says. But the promise of Romans 28 is even the worst of things can somehow, in the economy of God, in the sovereignty of God, can still cause good. That anchors you. It means if you're Harold Abrahams, you can look down that track and say, I might fall flat on my face, I might lose, I might be rejected. And somehow, not only will that not uh, buffet me and take me off course, somehow God will work that for good. (laughs) Suffering, trauma, disappointment. Somehow, if God is sovereign, and he is, And if he is good, and he certainly is, and the cross tells us, there is nothing. His peace is so deep that there's nothing that cannot actually be engendered to deepen that peace. That's the extraordinary thing. If your ultimate hope is in God, then even the worst of things force you into your ultimate hope. Isaiah 54, verse 10, says, For the mountains... For the mountains made apart and the hills be removed. The mountains made apart and the hills be removed. Brexit might be a disaster. The economy might crash. I might make any more political statements. The mountains made apart, the hills be removed. Your marriage might get really hard. 
You might not get married and you really want to. Children might suddenly reject and rebel. The boss might knock on the door tomorrow. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed. For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed. Churches may change, challenges may come. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. How do we know he has compassion on us? Because he endured hostility from us and for us. You look at the cross and you see a compassionate God. He can trust his promises. You can trust his promises. Will you trust his promises this morning? Will you trust him? I'm going to push you harder. As I said at the beginning, I want you to experience this for yourself today, this week, this Christmas, into the new year. I said we finished with Colossians 3 verse 15. Paul says this to a church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. I'd love you to, if you have... Write it on your, somewhere, write it on your head, mirror. <laughs> I read this verse this week, I was just meditating on it, and it's funny how little words just jump out, which you otherwise wouldn't uh, notice when you read the Bible. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it. He is expecting Christians to take responsibility, to be active. There's this incredible peace that's been won. No hostility, family of God, affirmation of the Father. Uh, All things can be worked together for good. But we, you and I, because God's given us the dignity of having responsibility and our decisions matter, Paul says, let it. Will you let it come in this morning? Will you let it come in this week as you approach Christmas? Pray it out, speak it out, write it out. It's not mind over matter, it's declaring truth, and truth does things to our mind. <coughs> Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. It's not a matter, wow, this is this peace that Jesus offers. Jesus, maybe you could, I'll, I'll, you could squeeze up in the throne, in the space of my heart, and, and you and these other sources of peace can, can share the throne. Because my insurance plan, that's kind of... Yeah, pension plan, well-adjusted kids, good marriage, good church. Only one thing should rule in your hearts. So Paul's saying it's not a matter of Jesus having to find some space. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule. Doesn't mean those good things get discarded, but they mustn't have the throne. And you could, because they can't be trusted. They can't ultimately be trusted. But the peace of Christ can. So my question to you this morning is, will you let it? And will you let it rule? Will it be the, the dominating, enduring uh, object of your trust? And if you do, it will bring you a peace that nothing else can shake or move. And the carol that we're going to sing in a moment is another lyric that says, In all our trials, born to be our friend, this is about Jesus, he knows our need and weakness is no stranger. And we're like, oh wow, Jesus, my friend, he's alongside me, he knows where I struggle, he puts his arm around my shoulder. He does. The very next line says, behold your king, before him lowly bend. <laughs> wow. But for the writer, it's just seamless. 
Jesus is a friend. He knows our weakness. He knows us intimately and personally. He's the prince, and we bow before him and let him rule in our hearts. Will you do that this morning? Or is it a case of him finding some room alongside the pension plan and the marriage and the good kids in the church? You know, anxiety is such a thing, isn't it? More and more and more. People saying that they're just more and more increasingly dominated by anxious thoughts. Some of you may experience that, either from a, 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 the daily reality of a, a loving concern for good things that we all have, or maybe there's more of a specific um, medical diagnosis at play that means anxiety is rampant and is restrictive. Some of you know that my wife Caroline is a clinical psychologist, she's qualified and is practicing and is helping uh, children, young people, quite serious mental health, some of whom will be suffering from anxiety. So, you know, in the, in the simple sense, you know, we get it. We're not just saying, ah, there's some truth in scripture. Apply it, you'll be fine. That's not what we're saying. We get the need people to study, to learn, to be careful, to work out how the brain works, to find all kinds of helpful, worldly ways of bringing some peace. But we also get the ultimate peace, the peace that doesn't change, the peace that means that your mind is healthy and well, ultimately that comes from the Prince of Peace taking his rightful place and ruling in our hearts and our minds being renewed and transformed as a result. doesn't mean that we dismiss medication. doesn't mean that we dismiss uh, wonderful therapy. But ultimately, the peace that will endure comes from the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. If you experience anxiety or mental health challenges, there is a seat at the table here for you. It's really important that you know that. You want to generate a culture where that is true. Not just because some bloke here says it, but because you experience it. And our desire is to learn to help each other to have those tough, honest conversations, to be vulnerable, knowing that ultimately we're all pointing each other towards the ultimate source of peace through conversation, through prayer, through time. For some of us, mental health will be a lifelong battle. It, it, for some of us, it just will. But you can be winning that battle along the way by letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Anxiety is essentially, I'm trusting my wife here, the fear of impending loss. It's your brain beginning to say you're going to lose something, health, reputation, whatever it might be. And that then causes a spiral of negative thoughts, isn't it? And it's constrictive. The word of God, the Prince of Peace says to you, you could lose everything and I'll still turn that for good. Okay. (laughs) There's peace of mind there, eh? So we're going to sing this carol together. I know we're a little later on time, but I think that's okay, just for a few minutes. I'd love us to sing this, and perhaps Jamie and Anna to help us. And I would encourage you to use this carol. You might want to just sing it and worship. It's a wonderful worship carol. Bow the knee before Jesus. You might want to use it to repent. Repentance is a, is a hard, but ultimately wonderful, biblically fruitful thing. And we say, God, I'm sorry. I may have let even good things take the place in my heart of the ultimate thing. And I only want the Prince of Peace to rule. And I'm letting you back in. When I talk about mental health and anxiety, I might be poking some raw nerves. I'm doing that because I love you and I'm for you. Why not use this carol to let the Prince of Peace come and rule in your heart 
And the word of God do what Romans tells us it would do and it renews our minds. Can we do that together? If you know the person next to you, even if you don't, you can ask them to pray with you, to lay hands on you. It's part of being family. Brothers and sisters, we go on this together. Harold Abrahams was so lonely because he ran on his own, trained on his own. It's not the way. Christian life is a race, but we do it together. Enough from me. Shall we stand? And let's sing, worship, repent, receive forgiveness, fresh grace, healing. God, we just say, do all that you would do in these few moments. We just open ourselves afresh to you. We thank you for the amazing Trinitarian God that we have, the Son that we're united to, the Father that affirms us, and the Spirit that comes to hover in this place and lead us into all truth, that we might enjoy true peace and flourish. Amen.